This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. We're going to get and get started even as people are, are trickling in. Um, my name is Tando, that's short for Nam Tandazo. Originally from, I don't know where anymore. <laughs> Originally from Zambia and Zimbabwe and South Africa and Swaziland and Ghana. If you want to know how, I'll let you, I'll, you can ask me um, during the break. But I'm from Africa currently. I'm based here, I'm in grad school. How many of you here are students? Good, so I'm not the only one who's struggling with writing papers and doing readings and all that exciting stuff. Um, but it's good to be on break and to be here for GYC. Have you been blessed so far? Amen, we praise God for that. Um, so in this session, what we are going to do is we're going to continue with our theme as we're looking at character development in the context of the Greek controversy. And we want to take a look at some of, some of God's people over the years who've been faithful and what we can learn from them about what it means to develop characters and to stand in this controversy on God's side and how critical that is for our lives. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer and then we'll get into our study um, for this morning. So let's just pray together. Yeah. Loving Father in heaven, we are thankful for this time. We thank you for what we're learning so far here at GYC. And Father, even as we sit through this seminar, we're asking that you speak to us. We're asking, dear Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to comprehend your word and that you would touch each one of us individually. May your Holy Spirit be present here to speak to us and encourage us. We pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm talking here to students of the word, right? So when you think back to the books of Daniel and Revelation, specifically Daniel chapters 2 and 7, can you list the four world empires in Daniel 2 and 7? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and, and Rome. So as we develop this theme, talking about this great controversy, this cosmic conflict in which we are caught in the crossfire, we're going to look through each one of those world empires, and we're going to pick specific characters of the Bible that lived during those times, and study their lives, and see how they stood faithful in this conflict, even withstanding the influence of their time. And so in this session, we want to look at Babylon. Now, because you're all great students of the word, amen? Yeah, you don't seem convinced. <laughs> because you're all such great students of the word, I'm going to assume that you're familiar with some of the historical context of Babylon. Yes? Yes? Yes. Um, and so we'll, we'll not cover that in much detail, but I'll give you a brief background, and then I want us to hone in on Daniel chapters 3 and 6, will be the meat of our study this morning. Now, President Barack Obama, on January 24th, 2012, 
delivered in, in one of his most eloquent speeches a blueprint for an America that is built to last. And as I was listening to his speech, the thoughts sort of crossed my mind that, you know, the Bible says that there is nothing new under the sun and that, you know, this rhetoric that Obama was using of this America built to last was something that King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had actually built his kingdom on. You will know King Nebuchadnezzar as a statesman, a soldier, an architect, ruler of Babylon. The first world empire we find talked about in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and the context of the book of Daniel. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, just to give you some interesting background here, Babylon, in the way in which he built it, it was actually built to last forever. Let's see if this will work for me here. No. Okay. So you just have to bear with me as I go back and forth. But Babylon, in, in the way in which King Nebuchadnezzar built it, it was laid out in a perfect square. And I want you to use your sanctified imagination here to picture how it is that he built Babylon. It was laid out in a perfect square, measuring 15 miles on both sides, 24 kilometers for those of us who use the standard system of units. Forgive me, my American friends, but um, 15 miles on both sides. And the walls of Babylon are estimated to have been about 300 feet high, that's 91 meters, and some 87 feet thick. So this was huge, right? And the walls were so wide, if you want a pictorial sort of explanation, so wide that at least three chariots could ride on top of the walls side by side. Can you picture it? That's how thick the walls of Babylon were. This was a kingdom that was built to last forever. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, in his building of Babylon, built a city whose architectural splendor was unsurpassed. And Nebuchadnezzar ensured that no enemy um, could actually scale the wall of the city, it's not working, um, and capture it. And he had built a ditch of similar dimensions around the city, and he flooded it with water. And this was to make sure that it was difficult for anyone to even come near the city wall. So are you getting a picture of how he had built the city here? built to last forever. And water supply into the city was provided by the great river Euphrates that actually flowed under the wall down through the middle of the, of the city. And here's an interesting fact for you, that the way that Nebuchadnezzar had actually built his city and secured it in everything that he thought this has to last forever, he had made sure that even if, even if his city was besieged, the inhabitants of the city could survive on the food supply stored in the city for 15 years. This is the kingdom built to last forever. And this is the context in which we find Daniel and his three friends in Babylon the Great. This um, stone epitaph was found among the ruins of the ancient Babylonian kingdom. And when they deciphered it, it actually read may it last forever, which was the wish of King Nebuchadnezzar. Of course we know that that did not happen, but his desire to have his kingdom sort of last forever informed a lot of the way in which he managed and some of the decisions he made, including the context for Daniel chapter 3, which you know the story, amen? 
Um, do you, yes, we do. Please encourage me here. <laughs> yes, we know the story. And this was the context of Nebuchadnezzar. This was why. Because he wanted his kingdom to last, what, forever. Now, given this background, let's hone in on Daniel and his three friends and the situation in which they find themselves. Because this is the kingdom that they actually came into. So now take your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 1. <clears throat> and we're going to read... I'm going to have a little bit of trouble here because I need both the PowerPoint and my flip chart. <laughs> but, um, okay. So, Daniel chapter 1. Um, let me get there myself. If you're there, please say amen. If you're not there, please say have mercy. <laughs> I need mercy myself. <laughs> okay, Daniel chapter 1. Are we there? Okay. I'm reading from the New King James Version. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So that's just setting for us the historicity of Nebuchadnezzar as king of Babylon, coming to Jerusalem to besiege the city and taking with him captives. Among those captives were who? Daniel and, let's name them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, scholars of the word tell us that these men at the time of this besiege and their capture were very young, either late teens or early 20s. So I want you to picture what it must have been like for them. You know, you're, you're growing up in Jerusalem, raised by godly parents. I mean, looking at their life history, we can assume their parents were very godly. And you're just in the spring of your life. You know, you're you're really just at, at a place where you're thinking about, if, if it were us, you know, what you, where you want to go to school, what you'll do with your life. I mean, you're in the spring of your life. And then this tragic event happens, and you find yourself, you know, having to take this difficult journey to a foreign country as a captive, as a slave, to a place that you don't know, to, among people you don't know, to a land whose philosophy and religion totally differs from everything you've ever been taught and how difficult that must have been for them as young people. And we really want to take a look uh, more in depth at their experience here. Let's also read from verse three to six. Um, the Bible says, and this is again familiar to us, in the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but they were what? What is the word in your Bibles? Huh, okay. Good looking. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> if you have the King James Version, it says what? Okay. And then the New King James says good looking. But either way, same, same idea, same concept. But they were also gifted in all what? Wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. So these were smart young people that he was looking for. And so he says, also they had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So this is the story of how they were chosen as well to come into the king's court and to receive the 
instruction in the University of Babylon, as we can call it. And they were to learn the language and literature of Babylon. I mean, they were to be trained to serve before the king. And what they were being trained to learn obviously was not, you know, scripture. It was anything but scripture. Now, as you think about this, let's move on to, you can flip the slide. This is just, you can flip it. <laughs> so as we think about them being, being, being placed and being faced with the religion and the philosophy of Babylon in everything that Babylon stood for, idol worship, which where do we find idol worship in Babylon in, in the book of Daniel, the third chapter? Idol worship, and you think about false education, you think about the dress, the diet, everything of Babylon was so radically different from what they had been taught as, as Hebrew young, young children. Now you will know from being good students of the word that God gave Israel very specific instructions about their diet, did he not? Yes, and you see that conflict of a diet in which chapter of the book of Daniel? Chapter one, you please talk to me. I'm not that scary. I'm like, <laughs> no, just kidding. But, uh, not really. But, <laughs> but you find this conflict over died in Daniel chapter 1. But God was very specific. And then God also gave Israel instruction about their education, instruction about worship. And so their education that Daniel and his three friends were supposed to receive in Babylon was so against the grain of everything they had ever been taught growing up. And their challenge was to stand faithful to the God and to their, the scriptures they had been taught in this environment that was everything against what they had learned. Now I'll hazard to guess that most of us face a similar challenge. I mean, unless you are, I don't know. <laughs> but how many of you are going to school and you are not in an Adventist school? You are in a public university or a non-Adventist university. You tell me how much of what you're learning in your classes is biblical doctrine. Practically nothing. I mean, you are, if anything, you're being schooled out of religion, yes or no? And it's so bad that, you know, I, I studied chemistry and I was a student in Boston, I went to Harvard, and I remember in one of my biochemistry classes, and I love biochemistry, I mean, it's one of my favorite things ever to study, we were talking about DNA replication and RNA and protein synthesis. And I mean, I love this stuff. Don't get me talking about biochemistry. But my professor, you know, stands up there and, and he's talking about how when the, when the body is making, is making proteins and reading off this RNA code, that the body has this, I mean, this is amazing, blew my mind, this very complex mechanism of when it's done actually synthesizing a protein, there's a proofreading enzyme machinery. And so the body assembles this machine of enzymes that actually proofreads the protein to make sure it made the right protein. I mean, how amazing is that? And my professor stands up and says, it's just, we don't know why this is, but somehow maybe evolution selected for this. And I'm like, are you serious? And you know, 
in, 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 in everything that he talked about, he just said, we might, we don't know, I mean, this is amazing, we don't know why the body does this, but it's just the way evolution made it. And I thought, there's just no room to even acknowledge that maybe, possibly, there's a designer behind all of this, because, I mean, how does this ever happen? And, and this is the experience that I assume most of you are going through in university classes. You assumed evolution, you assumed humanism. I mean, this is what you're supposed to believe. And all this is being thrown at you, and you can imagine the philosophy being thrown at Daniel and his three friends. And the way in which they stood is very much how we're supposed to stand even. Even in an environment where when I was in school, in Boston especially, where people think they're too smart for God, just to say I'm a Christian, people think, come on, you're smarter than that. I mean, do you really believe in a literal six-day creation? And you're made to feel, maybe if I say I believe, people will think I'm so dumb, or like I don't think for myself, or I'm committing intellectual suicide. Am I resonating with somebody here, facing that same pressure? How many of you are young professionals? You're working, maybe you're... Oh, we have so few young professionals here. Could I, could I see your hands again? We have a few, okay. How many of you who are working find it easy to mention God in your office? There are a few of you. Daniel and his three friends are powerful examples for us as young people in terms of how it is that the philosophy and religion of the world, dress, diet, worship, everything, how we can actually face that and stand true to what we know from the Word of God. Now I'm going to invite you to do some thinking here with me. Turn to the book of Daniel chapter 3. And I want us to do, and I'm actually going to have you sort of work on this first a few minutes. I think you've been listening for quite a while here at GYC. Um, I want you to spend some time thinking. Now, in the, in the structure of the book of Daniel, which is, you, you can, if you look at it, see a chiastic structure in the book of Daniel, which a chiasm, you can think of it as a ladder, right? And um, sort of parallel chapters or points, and then all building up to a climax of the very center. Can you picture a ladder in your minds so that you have... Um, you have something in a part of the book that will parallel another part of the book, and it all builds up to a climax at the very top, the center that is the very main point that the author is trying to make. So in the, in the structure of the book of Daniel, chapters 3 and 6 are on opposite sides of the ladder that parallel each other, that tell very similar stories from which we'll draw an application for our lives today. So what I want you to do, um, and I'll give you, I don't have much time, but I'll give you a little bit of time to talk about this with the people right sitting right next to you, is I want you to go through Daniel chapter 3, and my markers are not even working here. Go through Daniel chapter 3, and Daniel chapter 6, and I want you to think about what are the similarities in those two chapters. I've given you a couple of questions to guide you here, just because I think, but I would even encourage you not to look at the, at the screen, just because I want you to think about it for yourselves. You may not have to read the whole chapter because I know you've read it before, yes? 
I mean, a good student of the word. But I want you to think about what are the similarities between those two chapters and sort of map out their stories. And then I'll show you the comparison chart in a few minutes. I'm going to give you six minutes. Um, so you have to do this as quickly as you can. And you can please talk to the people right next to you if you would like. This is not a test, so you don't have to do it by yourself. But just compare the two chapters and draw out their similarities and their parallels. Um, because we'll use that to draw our lesson for this morning. Any questions on, on what I've just said? Is the task clear? Okay, so you've got about five minutes left now. <laughs> five and a half. <laughs> Okay, let's go ahead and come back together. I know you're not done talking, but the beauty of seminars is you can always talk about this even after, right? And, you, and this is something you can take back home and actually study. Now, I need, I need, I need two very brave volunteers um, to just come up here and just write for us on this flip chart what are some of the things you saw in those two chapters and draw the parallel. I need two volunteers. Before I graciously volunteer you, do I have two volunteers? Don't worry about being right or wrong. We're studying together here. Um, so just write down bullet points of what you've seen in, in the. Um, go ahead. And you, can, mm -hmm. you can just do both. Right. And as she's writing, you can um, actually just do three, and then I'll, yeah, you can finish that one. As she's writing, just be thinking about whether these are some of the things that um, equally came up as you were comparing the two chapters. It's actually striking how they parallel. Um, it's really profound. Let me look at it. Does anybody um, watch his writing? Let me ask you a question that you may be able to answer, may not be able to answer, but that's okay. Um, does anybody know what the time difference was between chapters three and six? Because they did not happen at the same time, did they? Does anybody know the time difference? Around there. <laughs> Around at least 50 years from what biblical scholars tell us. Um, at least 50 years. I mean, there are some who say, you know, 60, but you can, um, you can look, you can safely put it about 50 years. And so, chapter three happens pretty early on in their experience. They're young. By the time chapter six happens, Daniel is an old man, <laughs> a very old man. Um, so this is what our sister graciously put on the flip chart for us. 
in chapter 3, um, who is the king? Nebuchadnezzar and king of which kingdom? Babylon. In chapter 6, we have which kingdom? The kingdom of the Medes and Persians. And who is the king? King Darius. Now, in both scenarios, our sister has identified that there is a decree or a command that is given. You agree? In chapter 3, what is the command that is given? To worship the image which Nebuchadnezzar had what? Had set up. Now, go to chapter 3 of Daniel. Let me show you something here. As you're looking at this, is I'm going to read um, for you from verse 1. And I want you to pay attention to, you know, being a good student of the Bible, you have to pay attention to repetition. In, if, if you and I are writing a paper or an email or something, if you want to emphasize something, you will emphasize it by underlining it, bold it, highlight it, correct? In biblical times, they didn't have that luxury. So how they emphasize was by repetition. So if you're studying the Bible and you see something being repeated, that's pay attention. This is pretty important. So I want you to pay attention to a phrase that's being repeated here in Daniel chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of what? Gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up. He did what? In the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Come down to verse 3. <clears throat> no, verse 2, the end of verse 2. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces, to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had what? Had set up. Verse 3. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4. Oh no, verse 5. That at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, what's being repeated here? Set up. Who's setting up this image? King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2 of Daniel, God has revealed a prophecy that's basically telling Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom, though you built it to last forever, will not what? Last forever. And in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar basically distorts the revelation of God and sets up his own sort of prophecy of what his kingdom will be. And this idea of he had set up, he had set up, he, has, he had set up, that this gold image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up is in direct defiance to the revelation of God. And oftentimes when we set up things in our own lives that are in direct contradiction to the revelation of God, we better be careful. This image is set up and there's a command that is given that they should bow down. In chapter 6 of Daniel, the command is different. What is the command that is given? You'll have to flip back and forth between chapters 3 and 6 because we're doing a comparison study here. What is the, the decree, the command that is given? In what verse do we find it? Verse 7. The Bible says, I'm going to read from verse 6. 
This is King Darius, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, the advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you or king shall be cast into what? An alliance. So the decree or the command that is made in chapter 6 of Daniel is to make petition of only the king and no other god. Correct? Now, in between this and, and the next point our system made, something very important happens, is that there's, there's an indication of the punishment that will be given for those who disobey. Yes? In chapter 3, what would be the punishment? There's a fiery furnace, so you can put it somewhere in between there. And in chapter 6, what will be the punishment? The Den of Lions. Now go back to chapter 3. <clears throat> how, do, how do Daniel's three friends respond to this command? Do they buy down to the image? Okay, let's read <coughs> what happens in their response. I'm going to read for you. I actually want to read the whole thing. <laughs> like, this is such a powerful chapter. Okay, um, let's read from verse, I'll just skip to the part where I want you to hear their response. From verse 16 to verse 18, um, but when you go back home, just read the whole chapter again. The Bible says, and this is after they're questioned by Nebuchadnezzar of whether or not they actually did not bow down to his image. Their response is, the Bible says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to what? deliver us from the burning fire furnace. God's ability to deliver is unquestioned by them, correct? Can God deliver? Of course he can. And they acknowledge that our God can deliver. God's ability to deliver should be unquestioned in our own lives. God can deliver. There is nothing God cannot deliver from. Amen? Amen. That was the context of our whole first session. God can deliver. So his ability is sure. Listen to what they say next. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. I mean, he's more than able. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Verse 18, but, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the God image which you have set up. Again, that word set up. So they're saying, look, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to service, worship this image anyway. Most of us falter on this point because we, we don't doubt God's ability to deliver, but we doubt his heart if he doesn't deliver as we expect him to. Because we're like, well, God can deliver. And if God is God, why am I stuck in this rut? I mean, if God really loves me, why hasn't he delivered me yet? It's like we don't question his ability, but his goodness and his heart toward us, now that we question if he doesn't come through as we expect him to. 
But the attitude of these three Hebrew, they call them boys, I don't know why, <laughs> in all the Bible stories, but the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is even if, even if he doesn't, even if we're not going to serve your image, we still trust his God, even if he doesn't deliver. Friends, God's able to deliver, amen? You can trust that he's able. But even if he doesn't, he's still God. God's divinity is not dependent on our circumstances. Even if he doesn't deliver, he's still God. Now see what happens for them is they do not bow down, as our sister rightly noted, and Nebuchadnezzar is full of fury, so what does he command to be done to the furnace? To be made seven times hotter. Now this is the most exciting part when I was studying this. I was just like, this is so amazing. Because the furnace is made seven times hotter, and they're thrown into the furnace. You remember the story. And then as Nebuchadnezzar is looking, he says in verse 24, listen to this, powerful. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast how many men? Three men bound into the midst of the fire. They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see how many men? Four men. Loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like what? The Son of God. So here's the profundity of this. I just, I love these two chapters. And you see this in Daniel chapter 6 as well. Is They do not bow down. So they go into the furnace, right? They face the punishment. But as they are thrust into the furnace, does God cool down the furnace? <laughs> no. Does God prevent them from getting into the furnace? No. But instead... When they step into the furnace, who shows up in the furnace? Jesus. You missed it. Jesus actually shows up in the midst of the furnace. And this goes back to what we said earlier, is that oftentimes we expect God to cool the furnace or take it away or just somehow make it out as we're trying to get as we're being thrown in, we just trip and don't get in, right? Just keep me from the furnace, Lord. But we miss the profundity of the fact that God is actually in the furnace already waiting for us. And we have the complete assurance of his presence. I mean, he shows up. What better than to have the Son of God right there with you in that furnace? To know that, yes, it gets hot, and yes, it's it hurts a lot, but you're not going through it alone. And you couldn't, because the Son of God is right there. And what does he do? He, this is just so important, because the Nebuchadnezzar says, look, we cast them in bound, but as I see them walking, they're not hurt, and they're not bound, and they're loose. And so they're just sitting there, just enjoying the heat of the fire. <laughs> The only thing the fire burns is what? The ropes that bond them. And they're just hanging out with Jesus in the fire. I would rather be hanging out with, with I would rather be with Jesus in the fire than outside the fire without him. 
they're in the fire with him. Now turn to Daniel chapter 6, and you see this too in Daniel's case. We're running out of time here, so I need to speed through this, but as Daniel, Daniel is, is I could talk for hours about this, these two chapters, but the Bible says after this decree is made and, and, and Darius signs this decree that no one should make any petition of any God except him, the Bible says in verse 10 of Daniel chapter 6, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. If you have the King James Version, it will say that he knelt down and prayed before God as he did aforetime. Yes? <clears throat> you know what that means? Just an, as an aside for you to, to think about here is that Daniel knows this decree is signed and he knows what will happen to him if he prays to God. Yes? But he goes and prays to God as he did aforetime. You know what most of us do? When difficult times come, that's when we pray more. Is that not right? And all of a sudden, we're just crying to God every second of every day. <laughs> Lord, Lord, Lord. What the Bible is saying here is that Daniel's prayer life was so consistent that even in the midst of trial, he didn't have to increase his prayer life. He just prayed as he did before time. And the way that we pray in those difficult times should be how we always pray because that's how much we need to seek the face of God. But look at what happens here. So Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. And again, he is thrown into the lion's den. And then see the same thing that happens. Does God shut up the lion's den? <laughs> Does God like just make it so that it doesn't fall in? No, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. But when he is in the lion's den, who shows up? An angel of the Lord. And what does the angel of the Lord do? He shuts the mouths of the lions. The Bible records this for us. Am I lost? Um, the Bible records this for us in verse. Why did I lose my place here? Yes. Yes, thank you. Verse 21 to 23, the Bible says, this is after the king goes to the lions and to, because his heart was troubled for Daniel. And the Bible says, and Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. An angel of God shows up in the lion's den. And what the angel of God does is shuts the lion's mouths so they don't harm Daniel. And so again, you see the principle of the lesson that God doesn't always take away the persecution or the trial, but we have complete assurance of his what? His presence. Can you imagine Daniel just there, just hanging out with the lions and, 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 and the angel of God in the lion's den? Because God didn't take it away, but God was like, you're my faithful servant, I'm with you. And it's that even if, even if, even if, 
God is able to deliver, even if he doesn't, I still trust it. When God does come through, but not in the way that they might have expected, but God is right there with them. Now, there's another similarity here in that after this happens, if you go back to chapter 3 of Daniel, we're just going to keep flipping back and forth here. When Nebuchadnezzar realizes that he's looking at four men in the furnace, one of whom looks like is like the son of God, and he commands them to be brought out. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? What does Nebuchadnezzar do? After he commands them to be brought out of the furnace, in verse 28 of chapter 3, He blesses God and he makes a different pronouncement. And what does he say? He basically is telling his kingdom to worship who? Worship God. Do we see the same thing in Daniel chapter 6? Give me the verse where you saw it. Daniel chapter 6, verse what? <clears throat> Verse 26 to 27. What does the king write in verse 25? The king Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must do what? Tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. Such a profound change in just one chapter. You know, in, in the beginning of the chapter, he makes a decree that no one should worship anyone or make position of any god or king beside me. And now he's making a different decree that they should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And so the result of their faithfulness is that a heathen king acknowledges the supremacy of God. And a heathen kingdom witnesses the power of God because of their faithfulness in both situations. And then the last thing we see is that after this, yeah, you were right. <laughs> the last thing we see is that after this, the Bible says in verse 28, so this Daniel did what? Prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So after the king makes this decree Daniel prospers forgive my writing here I know it could be better but you get the point go back to chapter 3 and see how the same thing happens to the Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in chapter 3 verse 30 what does the Bible say the king did what the king promoted who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can flip the slide. Um, <clears throat> so this is the comparison chart that we're looking at. And it's so profound because as you look at the way in which in both situations there's a king who makes a command or a decree that's related to worship, that should be a light bulb going on in your head right now. A command or a decree is made relating to worship. 
a test on God's people, whether or not they will be faithful in this environment. God's people are faithful in both situations. They do not bow down in chapter 3 and chapter 6. Daniel prays to God as he did aforetime, and the result of their faithfulness is they're thrown into a fiery furnace in chapter 3 and a lion's den in chapter 6. And after this happens, we see how in chapter 3, the Son of God himself shows up in the midst of a furnace. There's just a profound lesson for us. And in chapter 6, God sends his angel into the lion's den. And after this happens and these heathen kings see God's deliverance in both chapters, they, they bless the God, they praise God, and they make a proclamation or a decree that people should tremble and fear before the God of these people. And God's people prosper and are promoted. And as, as good students of the word, where else might you see this happening in scripture, this pattern? Where are we expecting it to happen? In the book of Revelation, when modern day Babylon will do what? Make a commando decree relating to? To worship. And it will be a test on the faithfulness of God's people. To trust whether or not in the same way that Jesus showed up in the midst of that very furnace, he could do the same for us. And to be willing to be willing to say, yes, we trust God's ability to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, what will we do? We'll still be faithful, by the grace of God, of course. And this is the, the question to be decided in this controversy. As, as we heard in our first presentation, so powerfully stated that we decide who the winner is. And we decide whether or not we will be faithful. And, and, and we decide to allow God to lead us and to trust that he will be faithful. You know, because it's easy to say, if I were to ask you to, ask you to raise your hands to say, you know, we, when we think of a prophecy, we know what we expect to happen in the very end of time when this decree is made and we're faced with this choice, you know, of Sabbath worship and Sunday. And many of us will raise up our hands and say, you know, by God's grace, I will be faithful. Yes or no? Because we want to be faithful. Amen? We do. But let me ask you this. If we're not being faithful today, in the little things we're facing, how do we expect to be faithful in that bigger test? If I wake up in the morning, and, and God forgive me today, I went to bed so late, <laughs> and I woke up, felt like I'd been hit by a truck, and then I was trying to pray in my bed, and I just fell asleep. <laughs> I was like, Lord, help me. And I had to get up and out of bed to actually pray. But we struggle to even pray in the morning. Am I speaking to somebody in this room? And, we, and sleep just sounds so sweet when that alarm rings. It's like that's the sweetest moment of sleep. And, and we're struggling to wake up for devotions, and we expect that when this decree is made, we will stand faithful. Does that make sense? Because there's the sin that so easily besets us, there's these darling sins we cherish, 
The test of faithfulness is now, friends. It's not that we're waiting for this to happen. This will happen. We can't do anything about it. And God has given us a blueprint for how to be faithful. And that if we are faithful, there will come a place when the whole universe will acknowledge that God is just. Yes or no? Yes. Just like these heathen kings acknowledged God after seeing the faithfulness of God's people, the whole universe will proclaim God is just. And God's people will prosper and inherit the whole earth. We know this will happen. The question is, are we preparing? Are we today being faithful? It could be a simple little thing, just waking up for devotions, making sure you spend time in prayer, reading your word. Those little things that are not so little, actually, are what make up the character. It's not that I will somehow on this day have the courage to stand. No. Character is made every single day. It's the little things I do today that determine how I will stand on that day. And I pray that God would find us all faithful. Because you know what happens, friends, is when we are faithful, when we are faithful, there is no telling who the Nebuchadnezzar in our life is. There is no telling who's the Darius who needs to be brought to acknowledge God because of our faithfulness. There is no telling who that person will be in our lives. I'll close with this testimony. I was, when I was in school, um, I was a student, and I was, I told you I studied chemistry already, and when I first went to school, I, of course, was just on this mission of I'm going to just get my grades, get my degree, go, get out of here and just make a difference in the world because that's what students do. And I, by God's providence, long story, I ended up getting involved in campus ministry, which really changed my life, but also just opened my eyes to the realization that God was calling me to be more than just a student, that my being in school was God wanted to use me to reach my classmates and my professors. And when that realization came, it changed how I approached everything, my devotions, my studies, everything. So one day I was sitting in, in, in class in organic chemistry lab. That was one of my worst. I just hated organic chemistry lab. <laughs> but I was sitting there, and you know, my lab partner and I were waiting for our reactions to finish titrating. You know, you have to wait for you can be waiting for hours because um, you have to write down results and all the all this stuff. So as we we're sitting there waiting, watching our titrations and just you know preparing our lab reports, my lab partner, just out of the blue, turns to me and says, "You know, Tando, have you ever studied the Book of Revelation?" And I said, "Did I hear right?" <laughs> She's gotta be kidding me. Have I ever read Revelation only like ten thousand times? <laughs> I'm having this, like Revelation, of course. I didn't say that, but but you know, so I responded as calmly as I could, <laughs> you know, yes. <laughs> and then she says to me, "I somehow I, I just started reading it, and I don't understand anything in it, like." Are you willing to help me understand Revelation? Like, no kidding. I didn't say that. <laughs> but my professor was in the back somewhere, and I just, I just had to sit there and just take in the moment that I'm sitting in organic chemistry lab, and my classmate is asking questions about Revelation, and she's not Christian. She was not even a believer. And I thought, what are the odds 
that I'm in this organic chemistry classroom with this person right now who has questions about the Bible. What are the odds? We've, of course, met up to study, and it's just incredible because after we met up, then she said, she just opened up about things that were going on in her life, her family. I mean, she poured her soul out, and I was able to minister to her. And you know the best part is, we finished our report really late, and we were in the dorm room writing our report, and as we finished our report, she, she started talking to me about stuff that was going on in her life, and you know, she's not a believer, and so I said to her, you know, I'm really sorry for what you're going through. I'll be praying for you. And the Holy Spirit said, Tanda, pray with her right now. I just felt impressed to do that. And I thought, what? She's not even Christian. She's never prayed before. How can I pray with her? But the impression was so strong. You have to pray with her right now. And so shy little me, I'm very shy. You don't know that. <laughs> shy little me goes, um, do you mind if I pray with you right now? And she literally just almost jumped, yes, please, you know, please pray with me. And so, you know, we knelt down on the grass outside the dorm and prayed. And it was the first time she had ever prayed in her life. And when we finished praying, she said to me, could you teach me how to pray? Friends, this started in an organic chemistry lab. You don't know who the Darius or Nebuchadnezzar in your life is. You don't know. The test may be as big as a lion's den. It may be as small as not stealing that cookie. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the test will be. But however big or small the test, there is a Darius in Nebuchadnezzar who needs to acknowledge God because of your faithfulness. Don't wait for this big test. The big test is coming. But let your faithfulness today tell for how God will find you faithful when that final big test comes, because it will come. The character you develop today in your classroom, in your office, in the bus, the subway, wherever you are, may it be an open book that people can say, let people tremble and fear before the God of this person, because he is the living God. And God used Daniel and his three friends. God is not limited. He can use you today. And the question is, in this battle, who is witness your life? To whom does it lend witness? It can lend witness to Satan or to God. May you choose to place your witness on God's side that that classmate of yours, that work co-worker, may see and say, that is the living God. Amen. Is that your desire? To be faithful in the small things. That when the final test comes, we may be found faithful. Is that your heart's prayer? If it is, just pray with me as we close. Loving Father, we want to be found faithful. And we pray as God is faithful that you would help us to learn of Christ and to grow in his likeness. That those around us, Father, may see our faithfulness and be led to glorify God. May the characters we form today 
lend witness to the goodness of God. Bless us, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.